One of the most exciting aspects of Bible prophecy is the literal fulfillment of end time prophecies in Israel today. For an overview of these fulfilled prophecies and for an in-depth look at one of them, stay tuned. Lamb and Lion Ministries presents Christ in Prophecy, a program that focuses on the fundamentals of Bible prophecy, showing how current events in the news relate to biblical predictions of end time events and the soon return of Jesus. Now, here's your host, Dr. David Reagan. Greetings in the name of Jesus, our blessed hope, and welcome to Christ in Prophecy. As I said at the beginning of this program, one of the things that excites me the most about Bible prophecy is that we are living in a time when we can see many of the Bible's end time prophecies fulfilled before our very eyes. In the 20th century, seven of the end time prophecies related to Israel were either fulfilled or were in the process of being fulfilled. They were, number one, the regathering of the Jewish people from the four corners of the world. Number two, the reestablishment of the State of Israel on May the 14th, 1948. Number three, the reclamation of the land from a barren wasteland to an agricultural land of abundance. Number four, the revival of the Hebrew language from the dead. Number five, the reoccupation of the city of Jerusalem on June the 7th, 1967. Number six, the resurgence of Israeli military power. And number seven, the refocusing of world politics on the nation of Israel. All of these events represent the fulfillment in whole or in part of very specific end time prophecies that can be found in the Hebrew Scriptures. In this program we are going to take a look at a prophecy whose fulfillment began before the 20th century. It was not in the list of the seven that I just gave you. It is an amazing prophecy whose fulfillment began in the 16th century and has continued to this day. It has to do with the eastern gate that you see here on the picture behind me on the wall. For the remarkable story of this gate and its relationship to end time Bible prophecy, let's go to Jerusalem. In 1967 when the Six Day War broke out I was a professor of international law and politics. And because I was following international politics I followed that Six Day War very carefully. I'll never forget that when the war was over I read a very interesting news article one day that said that when the Israelis decided that they were going to take this old city which was under the occupation of the Jordanian forces, uh, the logical way to do it was to hit it from the west over at the Jaffa Gate. Certainly not here because all this territory was under Jordanian control. But the Israelis, always relying on surprise, decided, no, we're going to hit from this side. We'll come around under the cover of darkness and hit from this side. And it said that while they were discussing that, they discussed the possibility of blowing open this gate with satchel charges and catching the Jordanians by surprise. And then it said that when that suggestion was made, an Orthodox rabbi was there who said, no. You'll do that over my dead body because that gate is supposed to be closed until the Messiah returns. Well, I had no idea what that was all about, folks. I had grown up in a church that did not teach Bible prophecy. I knew nothing about Bible prophecy. 
So I got out a concordance and I looked up the word gate and I started looking at verses and guess what? I discovered Ezekiel 44 which is a, has a prophecy that says this gate is going to be closed and it will not reopen until the Messiah comes. Then I got out the Encyclopedia Britannica and I started reading about the Eastern Gate and it said that uh, no one knows for sure why this wall was closed, but the best story is that when these walls were being re rebuilt in 1500s by Suleiman the Magnificent, that a rumor swept Jerusalem that the Messiah was coming. And uh, they called the rabbis in and said, what does this mean? They said, well, the Messiah comes, He's going to come from the East, He's going to go through the Eastern Gate, and He's going to take, run all of you aliens out, and He's going to become the Messiah, the ruler over the earth. They dismissed the rabbis and the order was given. Seal up the Eastern Gate, put a Muslim cemetery in front of it, that will take care of the Messiah, because He won't walk in a Muslim cemetery and He can't go through a gate that's closed. Well, folks, that's a special story for me because that's what got me interested in Bible prophecy. I was hooked from that point on. I could not believe that I was seeing a prophecy fulfilled before my very eyes in the 20th century at that time. And so I started studying Bible prophecy intently. That's why I call this gate the gate to prophecy as far as it concerns me personally. Let's continue our consideration of the Eastern Gate in Prophecy by going to the pinnacle of the Mount of Olives where we will begin with a view of the Temple Mount from inside the Dominus Flevit Chapel. I'm standing about halfway up the Mount of Olives on the grounds of the Dominus Flevit Chapel. I love to come here because of the fact that it has so much significance in the history of uh, Jesus Christ. When uh, Jesus would come, over the, uh, come to Jerusalem, He would always stay in this little town of Bethany on the other side of this mountain. And uh, then He would walk over and probably stop somewhere around here in the morning and pray, looking over the city and the temple, and then go on down to the Temple Mount. During the last week of his life, when he made his triumphal entry here into Jerusalem, he rode into this town on a donkey, and he was hailed, Hosanna, the son of David. But that same crowd was yelling for his crucifixion a week later. But he's going to return, and his return is going to be very different from his first coming. Let, let me just contrast the two for you for a moment. The first time Jesus came, He came humbly on a donkey. He's going to return on a white war charger, the symbol of a victorious general. The first time He came, He came humbly to walk to a cross and die for the sins of mankind, but He's coming back to pour out the wrath of God upon those who have rejected the grace, mercy, and love of, of, of God. The first time He came, He came with eyes filled with tears. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus. He wept over the city of Jerusalem. But it says when He returns, His eyes will be like white hot coals of fire because He's coming in judgment. The first time He came, He was given one crown, a crown of thorns, which was pressed down upon His head till the blood ran down upon His shoulders. But when He returns, He's going to come back with all the crowns of all the kingdoms of the world. Every time I bring a group up here to this particular spot, I give them that teaching and talk about how the second time Jesus comes, He's going to ride down into that Kidron Valley and He is going to ride up to that eastern gate and it's going to blow open supernatural as we're told in Psalm 24. He's going to go up on that Temple Mount. He's going to be coronated the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Back in about 1987, I brought a 
good-sized group over here, not only to give them a tour of this land, but I brought them over here to attend the international celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. About 4,000 to 5,000 Christians a year attend that. I brought that group up here to Dominus Flevit and I presented the teaching that I just gave to you in a more extended form. And then that evening, we went to the getting ready for the final uh, evening of the celebration. They had a special thing for us to do. Four to 5,000 Christians walked around the old city of Jerusalem. We had bands that were playing, we were singing, we were waving banners, we were waving the flags of our country. We walked around the city to illustrate to the Jewish people that there are Christians in the world who stand behind Israel. And we ended that march around the city by walking up this very steep Mount of Olives. When we got to the top, we stood there and watched the sun set over the city. And thousands of pilgrims sang hymns as the sun set. It was a very moving time. One of the persons that we had in our group was a man by the name of Terry Gibson. Terry was a trustee of our ministry at the time, pastor from the Houston, Texas area. When he got back to his room that night, Terry was so moved by what he had experienced here at Dominus Flevit and in that march around the city and in that sunset that he experienced over the city of Jerusalem that he sat down and began to write. He wrote a poem about the Eastern Gate. And that poem has since been published in several books. Here's what he wrote. There is a gate in waiting in the city of the king. It waits above the valley and adorns a tranquil scene. Jerusalem is churning on the north, the south, the west. Yet the Eastern Gate waits quietly above multitudes at rest. On Olive Mount I stood one day and viewed this golden gate amid singing saints and setting sun. In the spirit was my state, looking o'er this glorious gate from atop that blessed mount. Two scenes of great events I saw and I now recount. One scene took place in ages past, the other is soon to be. In both there was the Son of God and this gate of destiny. The first scene was triumphant. They hailed Him as a king. There were thousands in the valleys, and Hosanna's loud did ring. Many miracles of greatness had He done before their eyes, giving sight to the blind, calling forth the dead to rise. His disciples were elated as they joined this happy throng. But little did they know that their hopes would soon be gone. So long ago the prophet told that lowly he would come, riding on a donkey's colt, unbefitting the righteous one. Yet thousands upon thousands stood in the valley on that day, and up the path to the eastern gate with palm branches did array. Save us, son of David, the multitude did cry, when suddenly the crowd did change, and they shouted, Crucify. Oh, what price our God did pay, while sinners yet we were. The mocking ones, the crown of thorns, pierced hands, what agony. And so the only Son of God was hung up on a cross. He'd come to earth in godly love to save those who were lost. Then the scene did fade away, and another took its place. For Jesus had said He would return to redeem mankind's disgrace. 
on Olive Mount I stood again, I viewed the eastern gate, yet it was closed, sealed with stone, awaiting a king to coronate. Ezekiel long ago had said, the gate would thus be so until the prince returned to earth, then all the world would know. Around the city armies stood from nations of the world, and smoke and fire were everywhere, the armaments were hurled, yet the golden gate still quietly stood. While looking upward it seemed, suddenly the trump did sound, it was the coming of the king. And then I saw the Lord of lords descending from on high with multitudes of heavenly hosts behind him in the sky. He came and stood on Olive Mount, and then the earth did shake. He spoke, and all the armies fell, and the evil power did break. Upon a white and valiant steed down Olive Mount did ride through Kidron Valley up to the gate where the Jewish remnant cried. They looked on him whom they had pierced and grieved as for a son. So bitterly they wept in shame, yet with grace he did respond. And all the while the numbers grew of angels and the saints, millions upon millions joined him in the ranks. They sang Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna to the king. Throughout all heaven and earth the loud Hosannas ring. The gate is waiting. The gate in waiting trembled, and the stones then blew apart, as the Holy One did enter His eternal reign to start. Oh, what sweetness in that day the redeem of God shall know. From Mount Zion in Jerusalem to living waters flow. Are you yearning for that day when the Lord of hosts shall come? Or do you flee in fear before the Holy One? Call upon His name before that coming day. Flee into His loving arms. He will wipe all the tears away. Wasn't that a powerful poem? You know, folks, I have read that many times to our pilgrimage groups, and each time it just blesses my soul. I want to shift gears here for a moment and point out that the Eastern Gate is not only significant in Bible prophecy, it also plays a key role in a debate that literally rages among archaeologists. That debate concerns the location of the ancient Jewish temple. The majority viewpoint today is that the Jewish temple was located here on the Temple Mount where the Dome of the Rock sits. Now, no one knows for sure where the ancient temple was located because the Temple Mount is under the administration of Muslims and they will not allow any excavations. The main reason this is the accepted position or location is because the dome sits directly over an outcropping of bedrock where there is drainage system for blood, and thus it's obviously an ancient altar. Those who disagree with this proposed location of the temple point to the eastern gate as evidence that the temple was really located about 250 feet north of the Dome of the Rock. They emphasize the fact that every year a red heifer was sacrificed on the Mount of Olives over here, and then burned to get ashes for the purification of the Temple Mount. The Dead Sea Scrolls say that when the red heifer was sacrificed, the high priest stood on the steps of the temple, looked directly over the eastern gate to the pinnacle of the Mount of Olives. Well, that would of course place the temple to the north of the Dome of the Rock. Now, those who believe the temple was located where the dome sits always argue that the eastern gate must have been moved to the north after many destructions of the city of Jerusalem. But in 1969 evidence was accidentally discovered that the current eastern gate is located directly over the ancient gate. For that story let's return to Jerusalem.
The debate about the location of the temple relates to this particular gate, which is called the Eastern Gate or the Beautiful Gate or the Golden Gate. Here's the reason it relates to it. When the Dead Sea Scrolls revealed that the high priest stood on the steps of the temple and looked directly over the Eastern Gate to the pinnacle of the Mount of Olives while they were sacrificing the red heifer, those who believe that the temple was located at the Dome of the Rock responded by saying, well, what happened is the Eastern Gate was moved north about 250 yards when the walls were rebuilt by Suleiman the Magnificent in the 1500s. But in 1969, an American student named Jim Fleming, who later became a renowned teacher of biblical archaeology, accidentally discovered that the ancient Eastern Gate is located directly beneath this one. Here's what happened. Jim was a student here in Jerusalem in 1969, and he decided to come over here one morning and photograph this uh, eastern gate. But it had been raining for like three days, and the ground was very soft, and these limestone uh, uh, coverings on the tombs had absorbed a lot of water. And so when Jim got ready to photograph, he climbed up on one of those tombs, and the limestone gave way, and he fell eight feet into a mass grave. <laughs> now, I don't know about you. If that had been me, I would have climbed on the air to get out but he realized he had a great opportunity. And so he whipped out his camera, which had a flash on it, and he started photographing in a circle, just like that. Later on, when the film was developed, the picture he took looking directly at the wall showed the tops of the arches of the ancient Eastern Gate sticking up above the skulls and bones in this mass grave. So we now know for certain that the Eastern Gate was located directly underneath this one. Now that we know that the ancient Eastern Gate was located directly beneath this gate, the argument that the temple might have been located uh, some 250 feet north of the Dome of the Rock is a much stronger argument. Of course, it's not proved, but it makes the argument much stronger. If so, that means the Jewish temple could be rebuilt without touching the Dome of the Rock, and the Dome of the Rock would be in the court of the Gentiles. It's going to be interesting to see how all that plays out. A couple of years ago, I had the privilege of interviewing Jim Fleming right here in our studio. I asked him about his amazing discovery of the ancient Eastern Gate, and here's how he described it. I can't take any credit for it. I'd like to be able to say after years of study and research, I finally found it. <coughs> it was a heavy night of rain in the spring. Uh, and uh, This is 1969 now? It is. I was a student in master's level in archaeology. And I thought I'd take some pictures of Jerusalem's city gates. And as I was walking through the Muslim cemetery on the east side of the city, I got close enough to uh, look up and was taking a picture of the arch. And I didn't realize the rain the night before had loosened the stones at the top of a tomb there. Yeah, limestone absorbs water. Well, and uh, it was pretty heavy rain yeah, too. Yeah. But just as I went click, the tomb collapsed. Wow. So the actual phrase needs to be stumbled upon. There you go, that sounds Discovering better. the Eastern Gate. <laughs> You uh, fell into this tomb? Yes, and those who know me well think I landed on my head, but no. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Fortunately, enough stones fell in with me that I could stack them up, climb on it, jump up and chin myself and get out. 
uh, because there was no did you fall? Uh, it was an eight-foot drop. Eight foot. And it actually was a mass burial grave. There were 46 skeletons. Actually, I didn't count them right away. That was after I found out there was enough stones to get out and there wouldn't be 47 skeletons. Yeah. But, uh, so there's bones all around you when you're down? Probably it had been some disease. I would guess by there was still some cloth and some cartilage. I would guess it was about 100 years previously that that burial had been put there. There were not records for that particular. Did you realize immediately the opportunity you had? Well, as my eyes got used to the dark, I could see the beyond the skeletons, the back wall of the tomb was the earlier wall, the same line as the one we looked at for Dr. Reagan's introduction, uh, continued eight feet below ground. And what was amazing is completely preserved stones in nice wedge shape of the top of an earlier gate, mm. meaning that gate is fully preserved. Do you have any evidence of this? Did you photograph it, for example? And fortunately, not only did I get a picture or two, but they came out. <laughs> because an uncharacteristic Middle East efficiency, when I brought my archaeology teacher back the next day after class, they'd already cemented over the tomb. No. Really. And it's because it is a Muslim cemetery, a sensitive place. So I was glad the picture came out. I, I, my archaeology teacher, Dr. Kohavi, didn't seem that impressed. I think he thought I, you know, landed on my head. Until back in this days, it was slides. You know, it took a while to get the picture developed and back until he saw the picture, and then we realized that yes, that and the uh, spring of that arch coming up is exactly under the left-hand arch today, which means that the present gate preserves what was probably two arches because it's the first quarter of that semicircle exactly below the first quarter of the semicircle above. You know, I guess it really wasn't too surprising to find the ancient gate directly below the current one because in most of the excavations in Israel, don't they find that they built right on top of them and the gates were right on top of each other? Gates have good memories. Yes. <laughs> uh, there's a reason for putting a gate where you yes, put a gate. Yes, and that's usually a road to an important site like Jaffa Gate or yes. Damascus Gate. And so they tend to be in the relative same part of the wall. What is remarkable is that it's exactly under it and that this earlier gate's well preserved. I know, I know some questions that are in our viewers' minds okay. uh, who don't know anything about this part of the world. And that one thing would be, how do you end up building gates on top of a gate? So are you talking about debris piling up or something? What's going on here? Yes, you tend to have dumps outside the city. <clears throat> so outside the city wall builds up. And so cities need, and the closest we get to that in the U.S. is a new layer of asphalt in front of the house. But in ancient times, cities are getting higher because the city's getting higher. But this was particularly true of the Temple Mount because when they, for example, when they destroyed it, when the Romans destroyed it, for example, and well, even when the Babylonians did, they pushed debris off the Temple Mount and it built up and built up, didn't it? Picture uh, the temple is on the east side of the city and that when uh, the Romans cl cleared it in, after 70 AD's destruction to build a temple to Jupiter, they couldn't dump debris north, west, or south because that was still city. But on the east was a steep slope in the Kidron Valley. Uh, so 
the eastern side of the city became a dump. Isn't archaeology fascinating? I love the way it consistently affirms the historical accounts contained in the Bible. As we conclude this program about the Eastern Gate, I want to point out that the discovery of the ancient Eastern Gate has not settled the location of the Jewish Temple. The debate rages on. One question that arises is this, if the Temple really was located to the north of the Dome of the Rock, then what in the world is the altar that is under the Dome of the Rock? You know the Bible gives us a clue in 1 Kings 18 and 2 Chronicles 7 where we are told that Solomon had so many animals to sacrifice on the day of the dedication of the temple that he built a special altar in the middle of the temple court. Perhaps the altar under the dome was that altar. We will never know for sure until there is an opportunity to uh, excavate the temple mount. And as I said before, that is not possible because even though the Israelis have sovereignty over the temple mount, they allow the Muslims to administer it. And the Muslims will not allow any excavations. And the reason they refuse to allow any excavations is that they take the position that no Jewish temple ever existed on the Temple Mount. And thus they do not want archaeologists to dig up any proof of the temple's existence. Incidentally, their rejection of the existence of a Jewish temple is a new position for them because that was not their attitude prior to the Six-Day War when the Jews regained control of Jerusalem for the first time in over 1800 years. Here is a copy of a pamphlet printed by the Supreme Muslim Council in Jerusalem in 1924. It is a guide to the Temple Mount. And on page 1 there is this comment, This identity with the site of Solomon's Temple is beyond dispute. This too is the spot according to the universal belief on which David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And so despite all their current propaganda about there never being a temple on the Temple Mount, one of the Muslims' own official publications says otherwise. One final point. The location of the Eastern Gate and its relevance to the location of the Temple may still be a matter of debate. But one thing that cannot be disputed is that the Eastern Gate is closed in fulfillment of Bible prophecy. And Bible prophecy says that one day soon the gate will be reopened when the Messiah returns. Here's how Psalm 24 puts it, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. The Eastern Gate may have been slumbering for a long time, folks, but it's about to awake and come alive with the return of Jesus. Are you ready for His return? If He were to appear today, would you go forth rejoicing, or would you try to hide in terror? The wrath of God is about to be poured out on this world. And the message of the Holy Spirit for unbelievers is flee from the wrath that is to come by fleeing into the loving arms of Jesus right now. Well, that's our program for this week. Until next week, the Lord willing, this is Dave Reagan speaking for Lamb and Lion Ministries saying, Look up, be watchful, for our redemption is drawing near. Would you like to have a copy of today's unique tour of the old city of Jerusalem? We can supply you with a copy in a video album called Insights from Jerusalem. This 75-minute video contains three programs shot in Jerusalem. One concerns the prophetic significance of the Eastern Gate. The second tells the remarkable story about one man, Eliezer ben Yehuda, who revived the Hebrew language from the dead in fulfillment of end-time Bible prophecies.
And the third program is the one you saw today titled, A Walk Through the Old City. With each order of the Insights from Jerusalem album, we will include a free copy of our video album entitled, The Galilee of Jesus. It runs 95 minutes in length and contains four television programs edited together to produce a sweeping overview of the ministry of Jesus in the Galilee of Israel. Following an in-depth introduction to the whole area of the Galilee, the program focuses on the Nazareth of Jesus, His miracles in the Galilee, and His transfiguration. You can get both video albums containing a total of almost three hours of scenes shot in Israel for a gift of only $20, including the cost of shipping. To order, call the number you see on the screen or go to our website at lamblion.com. Just ask for order number 808. Thank you for joining us on today's Christ in Prophecy, a presentation of Lamb and Lion Ministries, a non-denominational ministry dedicated to teaching the fundamentals of biblical prophecy and proclaiming the soon return of Jesus. 